Let's pray again. Father, again I ask that Your Holy Spirit do the miracle of causing our hearts to be attentive, our minds to be focused on the unfolding of Your purpose for our lives, on Holy Scripture, this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last few weeks, contemplating God, His very being, and His purpose in creation leads us now to this massive question. If that's true, He created us in His image now, us creatures. What is the natural, the only, response that is demanded of us in that relationship from creature to creator and then from creature to another creature. Now, if we're following the last few weeks, the answer to that question corresponds with what we've already seen about God. About God's Need love being eternally met in the Holy Trinity. And then He moves outward to overflow with that called benevolent love to creatures. So let's, let's review for a moment those terms that I brought up last week. Need love is the type of love that one has towards something or someone in the sense that I love Air. I don't love air in a sense that I'm doing air a favor. I'm feeding air because air is hungry. Air is the object of something that I covet and cherish to bring me joy, life, breath. That's need love. And God has, we have seen, by definition, eternally been a trinity. Another way to say, He has been eternally meeting His need, love. For what? For infinite happiness and joy that He has been gleaning from Himself as He has known, conscious of Himself eternally and loving the image that He has of Himself reflected back to Himself in His Son. And then benevolent love. Very different kind of love. Benevolence Benevolent love is when you take of your fullness, money, food, time, wisdom, and you give it to another who lacks that. God created out of benevolent love. Not in order to get something He did not have, but to overflow with the essence of what He is. Eternal joy, happiness. And share that with Creatures made in His image. Or so now we turn around. What about us? Same thing. We are desperate to get our need, love, met. How? Only in God. He's the only true oxygen for our soul. Period. Not from other creatures. And then we'll see, that's the foundation to go out to other creatures and for us to love one another called benevolent love. We see those two. Our love for God and our love now for other creatures come together in Jesus' words in Mark chapter... Where am I? Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. Remember they came to Jesus. Which commandment, Jesus, is the most important of all? And He answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love. Here's need love. You shall seek your need. Love 
the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love benevolent love. He's not saying, is He? Love other people in the sense of what you can get from them. Like oxygen? No. Love benevolently. Overflow. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So we wrap this up in the last few weeks. Consider the difference between what it means for God to love us and for us to love God. I think many people never even think about that. Oh, God loves me. Did good for me. Tomorrow I'll do good for God. And no, you won't. To the extent that you mean, I will do God a favor, like He did me, to that extent, that motivation is sinful. That that implies God has need that I could fulfill by doing something. God loves us with benevolent love. To overflow with His fullness, and that's it. He doesn't love us with need love. His needs are already met. And we love God not with benevolent love, but to get with our need love. God loves Himself eternally with need love. He loves us, the creature, with benevolent love. We love God eternally with need love. We love other creatures, or supposed to, with benevolent so this week, it's just the first commandment Jesus gave that I want to concentrate on. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's the implication of creation. That's it. You exist, Adam and Eve. What's your duty? To seek your dependence, contentment, and joy in God alone. In other words, fulfill your need, love. Only. In God. And the way I want to do it this morning is to say it this way. There's two main parts of, of this sermon. Let's just every day we wake up. And I want to, as we wake up and you lift your head out of bed, just picture over here on this mantle is incentives to seek your need loving God. I want to give three of those. Then, okay, I should. Now, how? Over on the other mantle. What does that mean? What do I do to find my need love met in God? And so first, why? Incentives. In other words, why should I listen to what you're saying today, Joe? Why should I be seeking my need love in Him? The first reason is really basic and simple. Every human being has a God-shaped vacuum or hole in us. Because it's true that God has these faculties called understanding and will, the way we've described Him, God has been understanding Himself or knowing or conscious of Himself eternally. And He has been willing to delight in that which He has known of Himself eternally. Then He creates humanity in His image with these two faculties to what? To know God and to delight or will to love Him. Then sin came. And sin means we turned away from willing to get our need love met in God to other things. And the essence of our very being made in His image, every human being, whether those of us who call ourselves Christians now or sheer pagans, every human being by nature, not just the physical, that soul aspect was made There's a part, a center of that that is made for sheer happiness, sheer fulfillment, contentment, joy, 
And the only one who can meet that is the eternal joy who is God himself. Sin came, that went out. But there are the remnants of that reality left in every human being. And those of us, even when we come to Christ and we find a taste of the fulfillment of that, when we wake up and get out of bed every morning and look at the mantle up there, there's an incentive, Joe, you may still be finding your satisfaction and need love met in something else. Or you may be crying and wringing your hands because it's not met in the creature. In the 1600s, mathematician, Christian, great thinker, died early, writing a bunch of notes about probably some book he wanted to write someday, never got to write it because he died in his 30s, named Blaise Pascal. In those notes, he said this, and I think it's right at the heart of just common sense. Yes, if you really think about your own life, this is true of all humanity. Quote, All men, men and women, seek happiness without exception. They all aim at this goal, however different the means they use to attain it. The will of humanity. The will never makes the smallest move. But with this is its goal. I want to be happy. The quest for happiness is the motive of the actions of every person, even of those who contemplate suicide. What is it then that this eager desire and this incapacity cry aloud to us, but that man once possessed true happiness of which nothing now remains except the mark and the empty outline, that's the vacuum, which he vainly tries to fill in with his circumstances. But all of them, all of those circumstances are incapable of giving contentment and joy because the infinite abyss can only be filled by one infinite and steadfast object. That is, God Himself. This is the essence of why the psalmist in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, expressed it this way, what Pascal was saying. Whom have I in heaven but you, God? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When he says, I have nothing on earth besides you, he doesn't mean I don't eat food. And that there's not something about human relationships that you have created. He's talking about at the core of that happy seekingness within my being, there's nothing. Nothing that fills that. It's shaped for you, O God, and you alone. And therefore, because nothing besides God, nothing can fill that emptiness, that vacuum, that hole that says, I really want true, complete happiness. Drugs can't do it. If I just get married, if I can just have the children I want, the right job, nothing fills that which drives us to all those things. Therefore, incentive number one, every day we wake up, we should be aware of that and should seek with all of our heart to know Him more and to have our hearts clean and find their joy and their contentment in Him to fill our God-shaped vacuum. And note, God is not the means to some other end. I know... I will seek God to find happiness because I'm told if I seek Him, He'll give me the spouse or the children or the health or the money or the job. Then I'll really be happy. Oh no. Only God can fit. When we talk about seeking God to fill our need love, we mean we seek God as an end 
that which brings us to joy is God Himself. Which brings us to incentive number two. Because you could say, okay, yeah. And any human being who really deep down thinks about that knows that there's something yearning within us that never finds its completion in alcohol and drugs and promiscuous sex and money and work. It just doesn't do it. But we can say, okay, I should, but is there really an object out there? And let's just say God is that object. Maybe He's not so willing to be that for me. But no, the logic that we have seen in the Bible over the last two weeks, this is why it's so important to contemplate God as Trinity and His motive for creating. Because here's incentive number two biblically. It is God's greatest desire in creation to glorify Himself by making you eternally happy with all that He will be for you in Jesus Christ. It, he itches to fill that which we really deep down want. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. And we are in a time of pain and suffering, and it's in part of God's purposes and will. The consummation of this joy is not yet. There is a resurrection coming. But now we live, feel this, see if this isn't part you, but look what God's purpose is and His heart is for every human being who wants to be truly filled with joy. He says, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why, Paul? Because he's talking to Christians. He's talking, something's happened to them. He says, why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is the embodiment of true joy. He is the embodiment of the community of happiness and joy that the Father has eternally had as He is getting His need love met in the Son. And the Son in the face of the Father is infinitely full and it is personified in the person of the Spirit. Embodied. And here's the miracle of Christianity that the cross brought. He has poured out the personification of that joy called the Holy Spirit into And that's what He really, 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 really itches to do. This should entice us. So on that enticement mantle, why you should seek your happiness is that reality. Let me just express it in a few other texts of Scripture. As you, you, you put these Scriptures in your head, and you know, no, God really, really wants me to be happy as I can possibly for instance, Romans 15.13. The Apostle Paul says it this way. May Here's his prayer for the saints in Rome. May the God of hope fill you. Why would he pray this if it's not God's purpose and will? May He fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love. Second one is joy. Why? Because the Spirit is the personification of true joy. The true joy that God has in God. And He wants our soul to partake of the joy that He has. And so therefore, the fruit of the Spirit working in us, there is a real joy that we share in. Psalm 27.4 Many of you know this by heart. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. Here's seeking need, love. This is what I seek 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Remember Exodus chapter 33. says Moses returned to camp. Remember the glory of the Lord would come down and his sidekick Joshua was there. But his young age, Joshua, did not leave the tent. He says, I ain't leaving. This is too good. One more, Revelation 3.20. Here's the heart of the Father. Here's the heart of Jesus. Jesus said, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. And He with me. He's itching to sup, fellowship, overflow with His eternal joy to us meager, sinful, suffering, temptation-filled creatures. God truly desires to share Himself with us. I'm going to quote from this little book by C.S. Lewis back in 1993. Because, look, here's the reality for us Christian people. It is really hard for us to actually believe what I'm just trying to say right here. There's always this part of us, does, that, does he really want me to be happy? Does he really, is he really out to live and to be the joy of my heart? Does God really want that for me? And a text from this little book and a sermon in the book called A Weight of Glory was transitional for me. It was transitional to see that the essence of God calling me as a Christian is it is not at all sinful to pursue your happiness. But it is the essence of the Christian command. Seek to be as happy as you possibly can. Let me just have C.S. Lewis say it. Quote, The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial. It does. But not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And to nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so in the Bible contains an appeal to our deepest desire. Lewis goes on, If there lurks in most modern minds, the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it, that that's a bad thing? I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics. He's referring to Immanuel Kant, a philosopher of 200 years ago, and the Stoics go back a couple thousand years. That this idea that you should never pursue anything, going to church, reading the Bible, doing good to other human beings and other believers, you should never do anything with a motivation that it will make me more happy, has come in from the Stoics, and it has really come in from Immanuel Kant 200 years ago. This is what he said. He says, I think it came in from Kant and the Stoics and it has nothing to do with the Christian faith. Indeed, Lewis goes on to say, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards which are promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong but way too weak. We are like half-hearted creatures fooling around with alcohol and sex and ambition 
when all the while infinite joy is offered us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is actually meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So enticement number two is that it is God's purpose and His overflowing joy that He has in bringing you into sharing His very joy. And incentive number three is you wake up tomorrow morning. Not only that, the joy God is talking about is an everlasting joy. It is a joy without end. It is not like all the other fleeting pleasures of sin. It is an eternal joy. Listen to how Jesus said this with the woman at the well. Everyone who drinks of this water, John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of this water at this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Jesus says, drink. I knock. I am the water of life. Drink. And I don't think what He means here is, you come, you come to faith, okay, now you drink, and now your thirst is destroyed. Because if He meant that, that means the next day, and the next day, and the next eon, we wouldn't be thirsty for Him. We wouldn't have desire for more of the water of Him. And that's not biblically what Christ nor God is about. He's not about making self-sufficient Christians. But see, look at the text again. It says, a spring of water. A spring is, is that resource that just keeps coming. A spring of water is what will go on satisfying you. So as you, especially in the age we're in, before the resurrection, and sin is still here, and you're tempted to drink from other cisterns and dig your own cisterns, there's a spring that you're constantly to say, oh no, I feel more thirsty today because I have been sucking in the air of the world and my tongue is getting dry. A Christian has the spring called the Spirit of Christ and the promises of Christ within them to drink again and again and again and again. And the water that Jesus is talking about is Himself and His promises to us in Holy Scripture. So Jesus is saying, not that you'll drink this thing one time and your thirst will be totally obliterated, no, but as that impulse comes again and again, there is an everlasting fountain called My Spirit placed within you. So we say, I was a Christian. I've been a Christian for 28 years. Oh, you may wake up thirsty tomorrow. And here's this process. How do you drink? You drink by drinking in His promises. And that the Spirit of Christ would allow and cause our hearts to truly believe them. So, say you're, you're thirsty because there's some situation in your life. I don't know how that's going to work out. I don't know how to get out of it. And it causes you to be anxious, unsettled. Where's the well? So, for example, you turn to Psalm 16, verse 11 in order to satisfy your thirst. And you read prayerfully, and you meditate upon it, and you quote it again and again to yourself, where it says, You, God, make known. Okay, I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold in this situation, but You make known to me the path 
of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And there comes a point where that anxiety, that unsettledness, as you pray, as you go over and over that promise, it starts to become, it, it is real in and of itself, but now your experience subjectively of it is you start to feel it and grab a hold of it. That's called faith is rising. Faith in that promise, trust in that promise is growing and you feel your thirst quenched and peace and contentment come over you. That's why. So where have we been? Here's that first mountain you wake up. Why? Every human being ought to. It's how you preach the gospel to them. And every Christian needs the gospel preached to them constantly. As you wake up, you ought today, Joe, find your true happiness and contentment. That is your need love met in Him because you have this chasm at the core of your being where only God's going to fit. And temptation and sin means you try to put everything else in there. So, that's one reason why you're desperate, Joe. The second is this. Know this. God delights to fill it. He finds great joy in filling it. And not only that, it's true joy because it will never run out forever. That brings us to the other man. Okay, but how? What do I do? You trust God. That's a simple answer. The essence of us creatures getting our need, love met in God is called faith. The only non-sinful disposition for Adam or Eve or Cain or Abel or Noah or Joe or Teresa or the Apostle Paul. The only non-sinful dynamic going between the creature and the Creator is called faith. So I'm going to say the same word. These things mean this. Dependence. Trust that what He says about His goodwill toward me, He means it. It is this understanding that He is more valuable than any and everything that does or could possibly exist. In other words, so that faith, there are three things on the mantle of this thing called approach Him this way, approach Him this way, approach Him this way, called faith, faith, faith. Three things I want to break that up into. One means this, the essence of faith at the core, it means you are seeking satisfaction. If, if there's nothing in you that is seeking satisfaction towards the object of your faith, it's not faith. In other words, you're seeking true joy. You're seeking to be happy. Secondly, we'll see that faith, by definition, inseparable from it, is called repentance. And the third thing is, it obeys the one in whom it looks to meet its needs. First, in other words, Seeking your happiness, seeking true happiness, true joy. Because that's true. God, I want to know what life is about. I, I want to be filled. I feel this God-shaped vacuum. Can you really meet it? Can the Gospel meet it? Can your promises meet it? means, because that's the essence of faith, that joy in our lives now as Christians is a measuring stick. It's a barometer for where our faith is. Listen to Paul's motivation going to the Philippian church. He says, and I want to come to you in chapter 1, verse 25, and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. Paul's motivation, he understood. His ongoing preaching ministry to the church was to engender, to foment their moving towards seeking more joy. The joy that comes from their trust or their faith in God. Why? Paul knew that the essence of the Gospel 
in, in the, one of the shortest parables spoken by Jesus Himself in Matthew 15, 13, verse 44. Here it is. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. And then, in his joy, found it that's going to fit it's going to fit that God-shaped vacuum. It's going to fit. I, didn't, I didn't know where I was looking, but now that I found it, I knew, I now know, no, know that nothing could be better than this. And so from the motivation of joy, he goes and he sells everything that he has in order to buy that field. Paul knew that the essence of becoming a Christian, to be reconnected with the Holy Trinity is when Christ Himself becomes your treasure chest of eternal joy. And so that's why Paul in Romans 15.13, as we just saw, he prays, I pray that God, the God of hope, may fill you with all joy and peace in your faith. That is, in believing. In trusting Him, the more you trust Him, Paul says, the more your joy in that believing will expand. And so joy in our lives, real, deep down, contentment, satisfaction in God, is this measuring rod, this temperature gauge of, are you trusting Him? How much so? And I don't mean giddiness, I don't mean, oh yeah, that's a church that talks about joy, so when you're around the Christians, you've got to act like everything's good. <laughs> I don't mean that. I mean what like Paul's talking about in Philippians 4, because he doesn't mean that. There is a joy that one can have while they're crying. There's a joy in pain. There's a joy that does not deny the reality of the situation. Because it's otherworldly. It's in this God-shaped vacuum which is not physical. It's beyond this temporal world. Listen to how Paul says this in Philippians 4, verse 11 to 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, smashed, in my circumstances. And I know how to abound in wealth. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and of not having enough food. Of having an abundance and need. Here's my secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This means that, see, the Christian life is a fight. It is a battle. That's why God had the book before Christ came called the Hebrew text constantly having battle images. The psalmist constantly using battle images. And in the New Testament, we constantly have warfare context spiritually. It is a fight to maintain, to get, and to expand your joy in God. That's why Paul says, fight the fight of faith. The joy for what? The joy that comes from trusting in Him. So, let me just give a few more examples. This daily battle, how does this working in our lives, what do I do? You start to become overwhelmed with anxiety again. You, you, you don't know which way to turn. You, you not only got a fork in the road, there's four paths, and you're not, which one do I do? Where do I go? I don't know which path to take, and it starts to eat your joy up. Well, you turn to, for instance, the book of James, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and you read slowly, and you read prayerfully, and you say, God, help my heart. Believe this. If any of you lacks wisdom, I lack wisdom. I don't know which road to take. Let him ask of God who gives generously to all 
without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. And so you feel your heart connected to the text of Scripture. This promise. He's promised, I will give you the wisdom if you ask. Okay, God, so I'm going to ask. Help my heart trust this truly now. Help me ask, believing without any doubt. And you feel your faith grow. Even though you still haven't made a decision on which road to take. And it still needs to be made. A peace that surpasses all understanding. A joy in. He's got my front. He's got my back. He's got my side. It's going to be okay. Arises. Or say that you start to lose your joy because of financial problems. Money. Got to do this. Got to figure it all out. You turn to Hebrews 13, verses 5 to 6. And you read. And you let it just smash again our unbelief that causes all that lack of contentment, lack of joy, fear to rise in our hearts as if God really isn't out for my good. And you read, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content, Joe, with what you have. Okay, why? For means because because he has said i will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say and he quotes the psalm 118 the lord is my helper i will not fear what can man or this situation do to me So there's the promise. Oh, I find that my heart doesn't, the last five days, believe you, God. I don't believe you will never leave me nor forsake you. Now I see that. God, I beg of you to work on my heart. Cause faith to rise so that I will trust you in the midst of this situation. You will never leave me nor forsake me. Or you say a root of bitterness starts to well up within you. Someone has wronged you and it is hard to let go of the feeling that you really want to retaliate. And so you read Romans chapter 12, verse 19 and it convicts you to the extent I have to take that into my hands and retaliate, it means that I am living in unbelief. It means that I am not walking in faith. It means I don't trust your promise here where it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Here's your ground. Here's your foundation. Here's your reason. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So the first thing is have a life that preeminently says, today I'm going to seek my happiness and my joy in God and His promises, not in anything. Which leads to the second part of that. As you do that, that means it's a life of repentance. Jesus said it this way in Mark 1.15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying, here, what's the Gospel of God according to Jesus? The time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, Repent and believe in the Gospel. Why is it? 
the essence of repentance, which means to change, turn around from the actions in the way that you're going and go the other way. Because repentance, if we understand that faith is looking to the object that you believe will bring you the greatest amount of happiness, I'm going to go there for my need, love, and, you're, and, and God isn't that, and if you actually come into saving faith, by definition, you're turning away from what you were trusting in to trusting in now the God of creation and the God of salvation in Christ. Repentance is the tails of the coin where the heads is faith. You can't ultimately separate them. There's a distinction, but you cannot separate true repentance from true saving and ongoing walk of faith. Because before our need love is met in God, we're finding it or seeking to find that need love met in all kinds of other things. Sex, money, work, drugs, alcohol, relationships, all over the place. This is why, now listen to the sobering words in this context of Jesus from Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters. Can't do it. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money at the same time, same place, and in the same way. You can't do it. Well, he's not done. Listen to the next thing. Because of this truth, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you're going to eat or what you're going to put on. That's stunning. Maybe it's not. Let me try to help you see why it's stunning. Let's turn it backwards. Here's Jesus' command. Don't fret. Don't be filled with anxiety about the basic things even of life because you don't know where the next sandwich or meal might come from. Don't be anxious. Why? Because you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's why. You're not to be anxious. What's he talking about? Let's, let's think about in this text how Jesus is using the word serve. What does he mean by serve and the word master? Because here, master is either God or it's, it's money here in this context. What does he mean? Here's a question. Because he's using money, that's the analogy for what he means when it comes to serving God. Does he mean by when he says serve money, he means be an employee to money, where money's your employer. In other words, where money as an employer has all these needs, and you're its servant. So you work for money. You walk in and you say, Money, can I take your laundry to the laundromat today? Is that what he means by serve money? Give me a nod somewhere or another. He can't mean that. What does he mean? He means serve money is this. There's something about what we believe money, goods, worldly possessions give us. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for contentment. We're looking for, i got a security and a future that you contemplate. You read Money Magazine. You study the stock market. You work 29 hours a day, you figure out ways that you can position yourself so that money can meet your needs. Isn't that what he's talking about? Looking to money as your master means you're looking to obey the laws of finance, the laws of the economic system that you live in, so that you can, you can benefit. You're not there to benefit money. You want to benefit from money. So he says you can't do that. You cannot be a person who lives to serve money. It means you live to look to money for how money will meet your needs and at the same time serve God. Live to God for how God will meet your needs. So therefore, true faith, which he's talking about here, of serving God, is turning from the money and looking to God where you used to look to other stuff to fill that vacuum.
It's inseparable from faith. That is repentance. And the third thing is obedience. Where every human being and all those human beings who come to true saving faith in Christ, it means we were once looking to the world, to money, to mammon, and obeying its laws in order to get our needs met from it. Now we serve God in that. We look to God and His laws for how I can get my needs met in you. That's called, you obey Him. We obey Him from the motivation of benefiting from God as opposed to living for money and benefiting from it. Now think about it. If that's true, the way that obedience is used there when you say, obey God. God said, do this, do that, don't do that. That is not an obedience like an employee obeys an employer. An employer is needy. An employer needs something done. He hires an employee to do what he needs and he pays him back for tasks. This is an obedience that is much more analogous to the way a patient obeys a physician. You do not say to the physician, thank you so much for this prescription I'm supposed to take down and get filled and these other procedures I'm supposed to go to. Thank you for those commands, right? Go do this. Oh, I'm going to do this. Well, I better do it because, you know, my physician really needs for me to do this for him. He doesn't need it all, but think about it. He does command you. He says, if you really want to get well... Do this. Jesus says, if you really want eternal life, if you really want true happiness, stop committing adultery. Stop embezzling. Stop cheating. Stop serving money. If you want, come love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, and all your strength. And then overflow in meeting the needs of others. When you obey that, don't ever think that your obedience is supposed to come in the sense of the way you would obey an employer. Only in the way you would obey your physician. Because you look to your physician as the one with expertise to give you longer life healing. Help me. Tell me. You know. Oh God, tell me how to live. Tell me what to do. I want... You have the words of life. Jesus... Where else are we going to go? If you trust your physician, that is, if you have real faith in him, you will go ahead and get the prescription filled. If on this ongoing basis, every time you go there, you know, twice a year, and you do need stuff, and he gives you prescriptions, gives you prescriptions, gives you prescriptions, you need this, and you get the surgery, and you take these, this medicine, and you constantly, every time, take that prescription, throw it in the trash can, it just proves that you don't have faith in your doctor. It's not the cause of you not having faith, it's just the evidence that you don't have faith. Because here's the basic reality of all of life. For drug addicts on the street, for alcoholics, for workaholics, for people that live to dress in such a way so they can get the praise of men, and put in ten thousands of other things. What a person looks to, to bring them contentment, happiness that I really want, alcohol, drugs, spouse, kids, life, education. I look to this to bring me my true happiness. That's what you worship. And what we worship we inevitably serve. Alcohol tells the person on the street, how you, this is how you're going to do it. This is how you're going to be able to drink me today. Panhandle. Steal. Do this. Obey my laws. You can get me. And you end up serving it. Or money. Or workaholism. Or prestige. With praise of man. 
Whether it is drugs, whether it's alcohol, whether it's people, or whether it's God. That's the essence of worship in what Jesus means by serve. I'm going to take the time. We can survive here. In Daniel Fuller's book, The Unity of the Bible, he quotes from a pastor about the dynamic that I'm trying to unfold here this morning. So, I quote. Take, for instance, some sexual image that pops into my brain and it beckons me to pursue it. Serve me! The way this temptation gets its power is by persuading me to believe that I will be happier if I follow it. The power of all temptation is that it will make me happier. So what should I do? Some people would say, remember God's command, be holy, and exercise your will to obey because He's God. But something is, something crucial is missing from this advice. Namely, faith. A lot of people strive for moral improvement who cannot say, the life I live, I live by faith. A lot of people try to love who don't realize that what counts is faith working through love. The fight against lust or greed or fear or any temptation is a fight of faith. Otherwise, the result is legalism. I'll try to explain how we fight sin with faith. When the temptation to lust comes, Romans 8.13 says, if you kill it by the Spirit, you will live. By the Spirit. What does that mean? Out of all the armor God gives us to fight Satan, only one piece is needed or used for killing. The sword. It is called the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6. So when Paul says, kill by the Spirit, I take that to mean depend on the Spirit, especially His sword. What is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. Here's where faith comes in. The Word of God cuts through the fog of Satan's lies and shows me where true and lasting happiness is to be found. And so the Word helps me stop trusting in the potential of sin to make me happy. And instead it entices me to trust in God's promise of joy. This is what Jesus meant when He said, He who believes in Me shall never thirst. If my thirst for joy and meaning and passion are satisfied by the presence and the promises of Christ, then the power of sin is broken. We do not yield to the offer of sandwich meat when we can see the sizzling steak on the grill. In other words, The Word of God. What we've been talking about over these weeks. A vision of God Himself. To know Him and to see Him and to have the work of the Spirit place His love for Him in you as that rises through the use of the sword, the Word of God. That's when how stupid that sexual thought was. How stupid that thought to do that person harm was. How stupid that stealing would have been. Any temptation that you get, you realize you kill it, not just by, that's my duty, but by causing true joy-seeking to rise up in the face of Holy Scripture to where now, oh, that temptation is a rotten piece of baloney. And there's filet mignon on the grill of God's promise. 
I finished the quote. At first, lust begins to trick me into feeling that I would really miss out on some great satisfaction if I followed its path of purity. But then I take up the sword of the Spirit and I begin to fight with the Scripture. And as I pray for my faith to be satisfied with God's life and peace, the sword of the Spirit carves the sugar coating off the poison of lust. And by the grace of God, lust's alluring power is broken. This is the essence of faith. Put this together then. There is one eternal God who has been eternally, infinitely, and gloriously contented, fulfilled, happy in Himself, absolutely needless. Then He creates. And He creates human beings who can reflect the image of who He is. What that means is that if we human beings approach this God in religion or irreligion in any way other than the sheer motivation to get happy with Him, to get from Him, that motivation is sinful. I think that is just another way of unfolding what Hebrews chapter 11, 6 says when the Hebrew writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and you must believe I'm drawing near because He is a rewarder of me who seeks Him. And that response is called saving faith. Saving faith is not some mere decision. That's why it's very dangerous to try to get people to make Make a decision for Christ today, would you? Come on, decide. It's not what the Bible's talking about. Saving faith is seeing truth. Yes, there's truth, there's a gospel. And then it is having your heart delight in the truth that it sees. What we have seen in these foundational weeks of this journey through the Bible, which we're going to start up in a couple weeks. Again, we've already started. We're going to get back into working through history. What we have seen foundationally is this, that God eternally is infinitely happy and He creates in order to glorify Himself through and in the creation. We have seen this. What do you mean glorify Himself? Extend His glory outward. What is His glory internally? His glory internally consists of two faculties. He has the faculty of understanding his knowledge. That is, he knows himself perfectly as a subject, as an object. And he has the faculty of will. That is, that thing that says, not only do I see what is beautiful, I use my will to have all my happy desires to be met in the object of my knowing. So He creates human beings in His image. That is, with those two faculties. With a faculty to understand. Animals don't have this. They don't understand anything. We have the faculty to understand. That is, to know Him. And the faculty of will to then choose to Love Him whom we know. And so God does this by communicating the knowledge of Himself to us, our minds, our understanding, our intellect, and by gifting us, placing His very presence in us, in the person of the Spirit, who is the embodiment of the will to know and to love Him. And so, not only knowing God's greatness. A lot of people can know the atonement down. Why God created. Tell you better about the book of Romans. And it might not be saving faith. You have to have knowing His greatness. You have to have it, but it's not sufficient for saving faith. The second part is that will. Tasting and delighting in it. These are all wrapped up in what God is doing 
in this whole creation, glorifying Himself in the saints. And so what we see then in these weeks, come on up, sirs, is that God's seeking to uphold and to extend His glory in everything that He does. And His concern, as we have seen this morning, for our eternal happiness, these two are not at all in contradiction. They are two sides of the same coin. It's the greatest news in the world that God never moves or acts or budges or uses His will and His knowledge in any way but to extend His glory. And at the same time we realize that means He is loving me as His chosen saint to fill me with the essence of real happiness and eternal joy forever. And so God is glorified in our finding happiness in Him. Oh, Father... We can never hear these truths enough. May You bring people into abundant grace to hear these truths, these crisp and clear truths all the more, that they will dig deeper into that God-shaped vacuum, that we will dig deeper into that God-shaped vacuum, that this week we will find the power of temptation killed by the sword of Your Holy Spirit's Word written in Scripture. In Jesus' name, Amen. Draw me close to you.